Uh, hello, I am Adam Gray. I've been living in Taiwan for a little over 16 years now, and I am a cram school teacher. So, I thought for sure I was going to hear, because typically when people talk about being expats um, in other countries, like I'm just used to hearing like, I've been here for a year, I've been here for three, 16 years. So I want to ask initially, 16 years ago, what initially brought you to Taiwan? So it's it's a. Do you want the long story or the short story? I okay. I'm gonna let you evaluate which story do you think is interesting, the short story or the novella, and then I'll allow you to choose which one. <laughs> I'll give you the short form, and if you want more, then I'll extend okay, it. Okay, I'll, I'll dig in. Okay. Okay. So uh, what happened was my cousin had taught in Taiwan for two years, and I was having trouble finding a job. Uh, so he said, "You know what? Why don't you just pad out your resume?" And, uh, you know, try teaching in Taiwan for a couple of years. And then uh, if you like it, you can stay. And if not, then you can come back and it'll look good. <laughs> and then literally, have you lived concurrent consecutive years, 16 years totally in Taiwan? Yep. I've been here. I mean, with the exception of vacations and stuff. Yeah. So thinking back to it 16 years ago, this is like an adventure. You don't know hardly anything or nothing about Taiwan. And you're like, well, somebody I know offered me this recommendation and it's an opportunity. So I'm going to go. What was your frame of mind then when you initially came? I didn't really have too much of a frame of mind in terms of coming. I was just kind of excited to do something because I had been uh, I, I had freshly graduated from university. I had been going from job interview to job interview for about nine months, doing a different interview every two weeks, uh, and just nothing was landing. My uh, degree was in computer science. So uh, I guess I'll, you're going to get a little bit of the longer story here. Uh, my degree was in computer science. Specifically, most of my courses were focusing on artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And as we said, this was 16 years ago. So, I mean, this is pre-iPhone. YouTube had just come out. Facebook was only a couple years old. So this is post.com bubble, but pre-app, I don't know what you would call it, like explosion. So you had a lot of programmers from that dot-com bubble left over who were kind of, you know, circling around looking for work. And then you had all these people who had been studying computer science because they wanted to go into that because that had been such a big thing. And because of it, it just made it really, really difficult to, to find a job, especially as an entry level person, because there were a lot of, you know, middle or senior level people uh, who had been let go when a lot of these companies has collapsed. So can I ask about that experience? Because I did not. I'm trying to remember when I entered. I entered before the big housing bubble recession. So that was the big thing. I, I think I was out in the workforce during dot com and I was out in the workforce during the housing recession. When you went through schooling, did you feel super confident that like, I am going into the right, this is the right degree, this is the right career? And then were you completely blindsided by how bad the hiring market was when you came out? Or had there been people talking about it during your degree inside school, so you weren't totally blindsided? Uh, I mean, I would say I was more blindsided by the degree itself. It turns out that uh, it wasn't really my forte. So <laughs> I wasn't as good as it as I would have liked to have been, which might have contributed to part of the reason why I personally was struggling to find work. Uh, I, do, I did have some classmates that were also struggling as well. Uh, some people were getting jobs. A lot of people I knew would end up working at, um, you know, Linux, working with Red Hat or uh, some of them went in. A lot of them went into maybe Northrop Grumman or Lockheed Martin, that sort of thing. So a lot of them were doing government work because that was where most of the work was. And that was predominantly where I was applying, but I just, 
series of bad luck. You know, I got into, I was at uh, Northrop Grumman one time and they were like, okay, it's down to you and this other guy. The other guy has the experience, but technically no degree. You have a a degree, but no experience. Ended up going with the experience. Okay. Uh, There was another case where I was, uh, they basically said, okay, you know, we'll, you know, we we pretty much can can tell you right now you're going to be hired, but we'll officially call you next week. And, you know, that, that week came and I didn't hear anything. I called them up and they said, okay, you know, just give us a couple more days and, and we'll let you know. And then I, I gave them a couple more days and then I called them again and they said, okay, here's the deal. When we brought you in for the interview, they said, you know, we need 15 low, you know, 15 low level guys, two mid-level guys and one senior. And, you know, just the day before we were going to call you back, they changed it. They said, okay, we need 10 mid-levels five seniors we don't want any newbies anymore you know we don't want any low-level guys um so it's just a series of bad luck in in some of those cases but uh but yeah it ended up uh my uh both my grandfathers in short succession passed away and then we were at the funeral and my cousin was like oh you know if you if you're not doing anything why not go overseas and teach english (laughs) so i was like you know what i got nothing to lose i literally that night went home and sent out an email, and by the next morning, I had an email reply saying, "Hey, we want to do an online interview with you. You know, come in and, and and we'll do that." And I said, "All right." And then I did the interview, and then the next morning, they, you know, I had another email saying, "Okay, we have three schools that are interested. Um, how soon can you come?" <laughs> uh, <coughs> So I'm curious about that. That has to feel good. So after all this time of getting so close, either, first of all, not getting close at all, you send in the resume, you get nothing, but interview after interview and getting close a few times to have it happen so quickly um, feels really good. Did that total like happiness, confidence, excitement last all the way through your move there and into starting your job? Or was during that first year, maybe, were there any really rough experiences in leaving the country yeah it carried all the way through um i think my mom was was probably a little more uh had a lot of time of it than i did yeah uh just because it was the time that uh they wanted me to come was right before christmas uh because they were having a lot of teachers who were leaving you know and they wanted to return home to their countries to you know spend christmas with their family so uh, they needed new people to kind of come in before that happened, so it was it was all very fast and kind of like okay, you know, get everything together and and then uh, and leave. And so I left right before Christmas, and uh, I think my mom was probably the one who was the least excited about it. So, but yeah, I was I was super excited the whole time. Do you remember what was had you traveled a lot overseas, and what was it like to travel there and be there in your first few weeks? I had only traveled overseas one time before. That was when I was in university and I was in the marching band and we went to a New Year's parade in Ireland. So we had gone to do that and we'd spent some time in Hamburg, Germany. So that was the only time I'd ever been overseas. And I remembered, you know, being American, people are always like, okay, you know, when you go to other countries, don't tell anybody you're American. Always tell people you're Canadian, right? Um, People don't like Americans. So when I came over to Taiwan and I landed, my luggage wasn't with me. So I had to go to the front desk and there was a girl there. And, you know, she's like, oh, where are you from? And I'm like, "Eh," you know, kind of shamefully just, you know, America. And she's like, oh, America's so great. You know, and she was so excited and happy. And 
Um, that was kind of a shock to me to see people that actually were happy to see Americans <laughs> and enjoyed Americans. Um, so yeah, that was kind of a exciting moment for me just coming over. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I not expected that kind of welcome. <laughs> what was what was living? What was living like? How you had been living before? Were you living on campus or off campus? And then when you moved to Taiwan, where did they put you up? Where did you find to live? And have you kind of stayed in that same kind of living situation the whole time you're there, or has it changed a lot? It's changed quite a bit. When I first came, they had uh, they had an apartment for the school. Okay. And so they were like, okay, you know, you can you can stay in this apartment, but it was kind of a, a deal where they said you can stay here for two weeks, and then you need to kind of find, <clears throat> excuse me, and then you need to kind of find your own place. Uh, that way, you know, if we ever have new teachers, they can use this. Or uh, the way that they uh, signed contracts, they had some teachers who were considered full time teachers, and uh, teachers were considered part time. Uh, so depending on your contract, so I stayed at that apartment for about two weeks and but i mean they were very nice they had one of the maintenance guys was a he knew a person who had an apartment that they were looking to rent so i ended up there i was there for about two no i was there for about three years and then i married my now wife and we moved into our first apartment and lived in that apartment for two years and then we bought a house and now we live in a house here okay uh, what, so where are you, where are you in Taiwan and have you generally stayed in the exact same spot or have you moved around? I've been in the same city the whole time. There are different, uh, districts. I'm in a different district than I was, but, uh, the city has been the same the whole time. I'm in Southern Taiwan in Kaohsiung, uh, which is just a testament to how much I didn't know what I was getting into when I came here. Uh, Kaohsiung is spelled K-A-O-H-S-I-U-N-G. Uh, so even though it's spelled with a K, it's pronounced with a G sound. And I had no concept of pinion. And I, to this day, have no idea who designed it or why they designed it this way. <laughs> but I was going around and I'm telling people like, oh, yeah, I'm going to Kaohsiung. Where, I'm going to Kaohsiung. And people they are like, I have no idea where that is. Oh, they wasn't you know, even write close it, enough. They didn't even understand like what? Yeah, because I'm saying Kaohsiung, but it's actually Kaohsiung. So... It, yeah, it's completely different. Um, if I wrote it out, they were like, oh, yeah, totally. We know where that is. But, um, yeah, I, I, this, the pronunciation, which is kind of interesting here because there are multiple forms of pinyin, and they do use multiple forms of pinyin. So you can look at a map, and, for instance, if you're looking at, uh, say, Taidong, which mm-hmm. is another county here, if you're looking at one map, it may say, it may be spelled T A I. D-U-N-G, and another one might be T-A-I-D-O-N-G, and another one might be T-A-I-T-U-N-G. So it just looks completely different depending on which map or which street road you're looking at. So it can be very confusing sometimes. So can I ask about that? In in the city you live in, um, <clears throat> what are the predominant language or predominant languages? And then I want to ask about Pinyin because it sounds like, so I, I study Hebrew and it sounds a bit like, transliteration of another language into English characters. Is that what it is? Or is that's it exactly what it is. Okay. That's it. exactly what it so is. So what are the primary languages around you? So the primary language is Mandarin Chinese. Okay. Uh, there are, uh, where I live in the city I live in, a lot of people will also speak Hokkien, uh, which is the local dialect, the Taiwanese dialect. Um, but when the Kuomintang came over from, uh, China during the Cultural Revolution, 
they basically insisted that uh, nope, everybody's speaking Mandarin now. So that's the predominant language now. You still in, in people's homes, they still speak uh, Taiwanese, uh, and you also have Hakka, which is another form of Chinese, and uh, you have multiple Aboriginal languages. Uh, but if you're on the train, for example, if you're on uh, the MRT, the, the, the subway system, uh, when they announce a stop, they'll announce it in Mandarin, and then they'll announce it in Taiwanese, and then Hakka, and then they'll announce it in English. So, um, how, how much of the street signage, just walking around, how, how much do you see in English and um, the the Taiwanese language versus Mandarin? Does Mandarin still feel like it dominates everywhere in written form, or really it's a mixture? So Taiwanese doesn't have its own written language. That's one of the things about uh, like where people will say like, okay, they'll say Chinese. When people say, you know, don't speak, I speak Chinese. They actually mean I speak Mandarin. Right. Chinese okay. is, is the written language and, and all Chinese dialects share the same written language. Um, they might use words in a slightly different order or they might have certain phrases that work or don't work. But if you go anywhere in China no matter which dialect you speak, if you wrote something down on paper, somebody from another region, even though you can't speak to each other, you can kind of write and read to each other. So in that sense, uh, you're always going to see traditional Chinese characters everywhere. Uh, and then they'll usually have the pinyin or the, the romanization written underneath it on all the street signs and that sort of thing. So there is kind of a push right now in Taiwan to make English an official language. Mm -hmm. uh, they're really trying to push uh, more... Uh, English accessibility for just, you know, foreign people or just to kind of, I think also to kind of promote English within Taiwan so people in Taiwan can go to other countries and that sort of thing. So is that supported? So let me, I, so starting out, I know almost nothing about Taiwanese politics, but I find it interesting that you mentioned at least there was a, was probably a cultural and political shift and there were pushes from China during the cultural revolution. That was hugely traumatic for the Chinese mainland is, was that as traumatic for the folks in Taiwan and where does Taiwan sit now and how supportive are they of the centralized government in China and how supportive is that government of Taiwan? Like where are the conflict points? Now it's a huge question, but, uh, so in so, okay. So in, during world war two, uh, the Kuomintang or the, the, the government that was in charge of China at the time, uh, was an ally of the U S and then afterwards the communist party, uh, kind of started taking over. And the Kuomintang had to run away from Taiwan. So they ran away to, or they ran run away from China. So they ran to Taiwan, which was previously under Japanese occupation. Okay. But they, it was one of the things uh, after Japan lost the war is they had to basically give up the island of Taiwan. And that's part of where a lot of this confusion comes right now is because when Taiwan was turned over, it wasn't really clear who it was turned over to. So... Basically, what happened was, it, you know, it was kind of agreed that it was given to China, but, you know, technically a lot of the documents that have been signed were signed by the American government. So it wasn't, you know, 100% clear. And then when China uh, basically pushed out the Kuomintang, they, you know, ran off to Taiwan and they kind of fortified the island. And they're like, okay, we're going to sit in the plan was always we're going to sit here, we're going to regroup, and then we're going to go back and take over the mainland. Okay. And that never happened. Uh, so eventually 
China, you know, grew in power. And then in, I think it was, what, the 70s under Nixon or something like that, uh, they switched recognition because Taiwan used to hold the Chinese seat in the U.N., and then China basically said, hey, we're the bigger country. You know, we contribute more. We should represent China. And <laughs> right. so the UN was like, yeah, that makes sense. So then they switched that seat over to uh, to China. And they actually gave Taiwan at the time the opportunity. They said, hey, do you, you want to you know, be part of China or do you want to you know, just kind of become your own thing? And Taiwan still kind of had that pride. You know, we're going to we're going to take over China someday. Come on. No, you know, we're, we're not going to we're not going to admit we're two different countries. We're still the same country. And that kind of came back and, and, and bit them in the ass. So um, yeah, that's where we have our problem today was that they never formally said we're a separate country. And now when, you know, China can say, yeah, you guys said you're, you're us. You, so, you know, you belong to us. Um, but as far as the cultural revolution and that sort of thing, that never, that never affected Taiwan. However, Taiwan had its own issues. Uh, they call it the white terror era where basically the Kuomintang, when they came over, were basically a dictatorship and just were saying, uh, you know, you, you have to speak Chinese. If, if you, you know, children who speak the local languages in school are going to be punished. Um, they were extremely anti-communist. So if anybody even potentially had communist ties, you know, you might just dis- disappear overnight, that sort of thing. Um, a lot of people were jailed. Uh, the previous, uh, let's see, two presidents ago i guess the president who the the guy who was president when i first came had actually been jailed uh during that time because he was pushing for democracy uh the former mayor of my city was had also spent time in jail for trying to push for democracy um they did eventually win it uh but uh yeah it was it was kind of a rough time up until i think that ended in maybe the 80s Maybe does, take. does that mean there's some weird, these weird strands of not just because you mentioned initially white terror, anti-communism, but then on the other side, also anti-representative democracy, anti-democracy, so kind of like no communism, no democracy pushing back on both ends? It, it's one of those things where it's kind of like uh, it, 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 it was democracy, but at the same time, it was people were pushing for more open democracy. OK, I got you. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So technically, yes, it was a democracy, but people were pushing for more transparency, more, you know, more representation, that kind of thing. Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. How safe the entire 16 years you've been there, I think from my ignorant perception from the American mainland far away across the ocean is that that whole area always feels sort of unsettled because China has grown in strength and these places that are sort of like on the edge are kind of Chinese, not quite Chinese, are in conflict, wind up being used as a bargaining chip pushed between the world powers. In your 16 years in Taiwan, have you always felt safe or did you feel either militarily or politically like things really got bad anywhere in the, that 16 years? Walking down the street, you would never know. I mean, it just feels like perfectly normal day. Uh, you know, it's 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 very safe country as it is, um, you know, very low crime and everything. But yeah, you, you, you wouldn't even notice until you turn on the news. Um, for instance, uh, w- one of my friends here tweeted, I think it was yesterday, the day before about, uh, China was doing military drills around Taiwan. They, they have their Navy kind of surrounded us right now. I had no idea until I saw this tweet that was happening. <laughs> until you saw it, right. Um, yeah. Until I saw it, you know, uh, 
yeah, because the day the day just feels like a normal day. Um, and I think that's one of the things in Taiwan where it, it feel a lot of people kind of uh, in Taiwan they'll, they'll use the word the status quo a lot, which basically just means that you know China claims Taiwan is China, uh, but functionally Taiwan it has its own currency. They issue their own passports. They have their own government. You know, voting taxes basically everything and it's one of those things where like okay if china wants to say we're part of china you know as long as nothing physically changes in our day-to-day lives say whatever you want who cares right (laughs) you know um because functionally yeah we're already (laughs) doing our own thing so uh most people in taiwan kind of would prefer the status quo just because it's uh it doesn't risk anything and you basically have all the benefits it's just there's somebody over there yelling uh off in the distance but uh, yeah, I'm curious about that status quo. Uh, so a lot of thing, obviously, in America, they talk a whole lot about the fact that people are becoming more divided and polarized. And there's a lot. I feel like there's a lot more public screaming and nattering at each other that used to be people didn't. You know, I'm, I'm in the Midwest now. I came from California. But this whole thing, you don't talk about religion. We don't talk about politics. <clears throat> this is how you avoid conflict in Taiwan is political talk. If they're kind of into status quo. Like, let's not rock the boat. Do they sort of avoid in conversations people don't talk a lot about politics and they don't get really angry about which side you're on? Or is it feel or is it a lot of public and private debate? I would say it's basically the same as as what you're going to get in in America, not in the sense that it's, you know, politically or culturally the same or different. I think that's just human nature, you know, where people are like, if I say this, I know I'm going to make somebody mad. And some people really just want to make you mad and start something. And other people are just like, you know what? I just don't want to rock the boat. I don't care. I don't want to deal with this. I just want to eat my lunch, you know? And, and I think it's very much that where you do have some people that really, really want to push. And, uh, but for the most part, most people are just kind of like, I see it on the news all the time and, and this and that. And, you know, I'm just kind of, just let me do my own thing. I don't really, uh, want to have to look at it. So I, I think, it does kind of have that similar, you know, try not to discuss politics unless you're discussing it with somebody who already agrees with you. <laughs> okay, so obvi- okay, so then you have some handful of trolls in real life who will say things to get people's goat, but then just like, again, it's personalities. If you like getting people's goat, you know what to say to irritate them, but many people are courteous and only say things that people they know will agree with them, so they're not trying to start a fight. Yeah, I'm sure there are definitely some people out there. I mean, right now, for instance, there's kind of a... Uh, big thing going on because our former president, the one before we had the one before the one we have now uh, recently went over to China and and said something about like, Oh, you know, we are all Chinese. We need to learn how to live together. And and a lot of people in Taiwan were like, no, why did you say that? What's wrong with you? Um, uh, Yeah. And then the current president kind of came out and she said, no, 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 we're we're our own country. (laughs) So, um, so in my, in my stuff, so it's interesting you mentioned you traveled to Ireland. <clears throat> Ireland made a big deal about reclaiming their language when they pushed the British out. So they have these places where it's mandated the kids learn Irish or Gaelic. My, when my dad grew up in the 60s and 70s and learned it was Gaelic, the Irish call it Irish now. But reclaiming the language was a big deal. Does Is the language in Taiwan, does it also claim that sort of real national national pride and cultural pride? Or is it? How big are people on their own language versus Chinese and English? Um, in terms of, I, I would say it's it's kind of a, it's, I would say it's the push is not as hard as it was in Ireland. Okay. Um, because a lot of people who do speak it basically were speaking it at home 
anyway. Uh, but out out and about, people don't really speak it as much. Although there is a lot, especially where I live in the south, that it's more common. If you go up north, then you're not going to get it as much. And I think some of that is it, there's a generational thing too. It's kind of odd. Like for example, my mother-in-law, uh, her family's lived in Taiwan for you know hundreds of years, so she grew up speaking Taiwanese. Uh, my father-in-law, his father was an officer in the Kuomintang who came over during the Cultural Revolution. So he came from China. He never spoke Taiwanese, but when he joined the military, a lot of people in the south of Taiwan who joined the military are from the south of Taiwan. So in the military, a lot of people do pick up Taiwanese because, you know, you're getting kind of these... I guess I guess the uh, the uh, the closest it's going to sound bad, but you know how like you kind of get like a, a a reputation in the military of getting like a bunch of like you know country folk and rednecks and that sort of thing. Yeah, those are the kind of people joining the military, but those are the people that are traditionally speaking the old language because those are the more local people. And so you know he he learned to speak it there. But uh, growing up, my wife's parents were like, oh no 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 no, you know we want you to to be more successful, you know, children shouldn't speak Taiwanese, you know, you, you should be more proper and that sort of thing. So even though her mom grew up speaking it, she never taught it to my wife and she never grew up speaking it. Um, but it is actually kind of a political thing because the two dominant political parties here, one of them is the Kuomintang, the ones that came over from China, and the other ones are kind of a local homegrown uh, party. And that one really does kind of want to have more of the Taiwanese identity. Uh, they do, they're not requiring it in schools, but they do kind of push it to be taught in schools. Whereas the Kuomintang is kind of like, nah, just let it die, whatever. <laughs> you know, if you want to speak it at home, that's fine. But, uh, you know, why bother? No other country in the world speaks this. How's this going to help us advance in the future? You know, it's, it's cute, but, you know, is it really functionally beneficial to the country? When you moved there, did you know any Chinese at all? Absolutely not. I knew nothing when I first came here. Was that an advantage? So you're going and you're going to teach English. So <clears throat> I think English schools all around the world have different views on how immersive they want this to be. Sometimes they want people who are clearly bilingual and du duolingual so that they can understand what the students are saying to them. And other places are like, no, this is total immersion. It's all English. So if you can't speak Chinese, we don't care. What was their attitude? We want zero Chinese from you. Or was there more flexibility? That was that was my school was definitely like we're a full immersion environment. We don't want you speaking Chinese. We don't want the kids speaking Chinese. We don't want anybody speaking Chinese in our school. So for me, it didn't functionally matter. And that's kind of actually backfired on me in a way, uh, because when I came to Taiwan, I was thinking, oh, you know, I'm in this country. It's a full immersion environment. Right. I'll be speaking Chinese in no time. And right. I. Yeah. So so when I started working and they're like, hey, you know, we have this special afternoon class or we have this special morning class you know do you want to do it and i'm thinking okay i should be focusing on you know work and making money right now living in this environment i'm naturally going to be picking up chinese anyway i had other uh co-workers who were like okay you know i'm going to focus on my chinese so they would you know they would not take these extra classes uh, and then they you know but their chinese would advance much much more quickly than mine would Right. Especially because since I was getting some of these classes, sometimes like, for example, in the summer, the kids don't go to school. So we would open a 
they call it summer camp, but basically it's like a, you know, a, an everyday English kind of class kind of thing. And so, you know, if I was, when I was in a Chinese class, you know, I might have to duck out for a month or two in the summer and then all my classmates have moved on. And then, you know, I kind of have to join a new class and that sort of thing. So that ended up actually kind of hurting me more than I thought it would. And actually Taiwan, uh, your average Taiwanese person actually usually has functional English. So it is really uh, available everywhere. And the people are, are very friendly, especially to foreigners. As my wife will say, you know, they're friendly to you because you're a foreigner, but they're not friendly to each other. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, they're super friendly. So I'll go into a restaurant and, you know, the person, the, the waiter will come up to me and he'll say, you know, what do you want to drink? And I'll answer in Chinese, you know, this is what I want. And I'll order my food in Chinese and they'll say, oh, very good. You know, uh, how would you like that? You know, like medium rare or something if I'm ordering a steak. So I'll speak English. I'll speak Chinese to them, but they'll, they'll respond in English back to me. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a couple reasons for that. One, I think people are just trying to be polite. You know, they're like, okay, they're trying to, you know, this, this guy, you know, this guy is, uh, he's a foreigner. Clearly he speaks English. He's probably speaking Chinese all the time. I'm going to be a nice person. I'm going to speak English to this guy. He's going to appreciate that because, you know, this is the rare opportunity that he gets, gets to speak his native language. So I think people are trying to be friendly on that sense. I think on the, on the, some of them, too, are thinking, you know, this is a perfect opportunity for me to practice my English. I never get to speak my English. I never get to practice. Here's yeah. a foreigner right here. I'm going to practice my English with this guy. And, you know, he speaks Chinese every day, of course. You know, like, who cares? You know, it, speaking english this one time isn't going to hurt him um but that consistently happens and so i actually speak very little chinese when i go out um unless i'm going to like maybe a like a night market or something and there's this you know little old grandma or something who doesn't speak a word of english then i'll get to speak chinese but for uh with younger people yeah it's actually quite rare that i get to use my chinese <laughs> How did you meet your wife and how did language play out? Was your wife totally fluent in English? So this is like zero problem or are there any language barriers ever? Uh, it's, it's zero problem. She studied in Australia actually. Okay. Um, so she came to our cram school and she was working as a, a Chinese teacher uh, teaching English, but we, we, we would say foreign teacher and Chinese teacher. So most classes will have one foreign teacher and one Chinese teacher in the class uh, so she was a Chinese teacher at our school and yeah, so we met that way, but, but she, her English is really good. So she does have a few little quirks. Um, yeah, like, uh, she used to call leopards leopards. Um, so things like that, but, uh, but no, yeah, her English is really good. Wait, her errors. So that sounds like the kind of error a normal person would look. Oh, this yeah. is why English is such a busted up language. The way the letters look phonetically, orthographically, the way the letters look from word to word, they make wildly different sounds. So the word, there's already a word Leo and exactly. their name Leon. And so you would just, it's got Leo in the thing. Leopard, who can, again, pronounce leopard. That doesn't make any sense. So I don't <laughs> yeah. know. I think her so pronunciation things, makes more sense. Yeah, no, things like that are um, one thing that I always thought was really cute. And I've tried to. I've kind of confused her, but uh, she she would always say uh, "have a sit" instead of "have a seat." Yeah. Uh, so so I would always be kind of like you know kind of giggling when she said that, um, and she's like, "Why are you laughing?" And I'm like, "Cause it's have a seat, not have a sit." Um, so now she would always say "have a sit, uh, have a seat," 
But then I was kind of like, oh, no, no, no. Actually, I kind of liked it when you said have a sit because that actually that that was the way my my grandmother who grew up in like Appalachia, North Carolina kind of said it. Yeah. Um, So I was like, yeah, there are people that say it your way. It's just not the common way to say it. Uh, But yeah. I don't okay. Well, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about language, but I am <laughs> wondering because I thought it was interesting that you that you mentioned that uh, that Chinese might be the language of that's the language you use to get ahead. And are there no? If you look at the country, are there places where it is considered a status symbol to be fully fluent in Taiwanese, or is it really kind of regarded as? As you said, kind of like if you speak like a person from the you know West Hills of Virginia, that a multi generational person who lived in the woods, people are going to look down on you. Do people look down on you in that country? How is the how is the language regarded? There might be some people that think that way, but I think in general, no. It's just kind of uh, it's more like a regional accent kind of thing because they do kind of throw in Taiwanese words with oh. Mandarin Chinese as well. Uh, so, you know, they'll use like slang terms or there's uh, been some crossover there. For example, uh, in Chinese, when you say hello, you'd say ni hao, which is literally translated as you good. Hmm. But in Taiwanese, the way you would say hello is boy, which means like, have you eaten yet? But <laughs> a lot of people in Taiwan will say... Li he, which is, you know, which is you good. Uh, so basically, they just say the Chinese words. You, uh, they say the the Chinese phrase, or the Mandarin phrase in Taiwanese, but they're using the Taiwanese words. But technically, that's not the way it's supposed to be in Taiwanese anyway. Um, so th- there's just a lot of mixing and, and kind of bleeding over. Do you think you will live in Taiwan forever? Uh, that's the plan. Uh, that's one thing that I kind of like, uh, I was kind of, uh, what was it when, yeah. Cause earlier you were saying like, okay, you know, I've heard a lot of expats and that's one thing where I'm kind of like, mm, I don't know. Cause an expat kind of implies you plan to go back to your country. I'm like, I think I kind of fall more into the immigrant category. <laughs> <laughs> Could, uh, have you tried, is there a way for what is the process as an immigrant to get citizenship? Would you want to become a citizen of Taiwan? How's it possible? If I could, I would have already done it. So that's one thing that's actually very interesting is Taiwan does not offer reciprocity, okay. uh, which means that, for instance, if, if we move to the States, my wife can become a naturalized U.S. citizen. But if I want to become a citizen in Taiwan, they will not allow you to gain citizenship unless you give up your previous citizenship. So if I wanted... So my wife can have dual citizenship. You can be Taiwanese and then become something else, but you cannot be something else and become Taiwanese. So if I wanted to get dual citizenship, what I would have to do is renounce my American citizenship, gain Taiwanese citizenship, and then go back and then become a uh, you know natural become a naturalized citizen of America. So I could do it, but it would just be this really kind of odd process. But that said, I do have permanent residency here, which is basically the equivalent of a green card. And that's actually not too hard to get. Basically, all you have to do is consistently live in Taiwan for five years with no gaps in your uh, living visa, which for some people can actually be kind of tricky because, for example, if you're working at, a pl- if you're working at uh, say, one company and you transfer companies, 
you need to have that transfer happen seamlessly. If there's even like a day oh, where crap. your where your visa technically expired, you'd have to start over uh, your five years. And that's happened a couple times. I've also known people that have had worked at schools and the school is like, oh yeah, we're gonna totally renew your thing. But then they miss the deadline and they turn it in like a day late. And so this person goes to apply for permanent residency and they're like, oh no, you've only been here three years. They're like, no, I've been here five. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you've been here five, but only three consistently. So. <laughs> that is that is some, because I was going to ask, what happens if people go home for vacation? So there's probably, you can leave the country. So is it you have to be employed nonstop? You have to have, a, uh, what is it, a work visa or a living visa? Yeah. You have to have your visa and and you have to live in the country for at least, I think it's 188 days of the year. So you could go back for a month or so, that's fine. You just have to live here for over half a year for five consecutive years and not have any gaps in your visa. That's basically the only qualification. What do you tell people? So given that you got this job off a tip from somebody else, do other people come to you either, do maybe a lot of people ask online or maybe people who know you, ask you about, hey, should I go do this? Because this is an outlet, given how popular English is around the world, maybe someday Chinese will be as popular and everyone all over the world. But right now, everybody, most countries want English speakers to come to their country and teach either their business executives or their little children all the way up and down that spectrum, teach them English. Do, what, what advice do you give people who are thinking about like, I'm going to go become an English teacher somewhere? Do it. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like, no question, 100%. I mean, if they have specific questions, I'll absolutely answer, you know, like, okay, you should go to this website or um, you should look for this kind of school or, or you should, you know, consider, do you want to teach adults or do you want to teach children? That sort of thing, if they, if they have specific questions. But I mean, really, it's, it's a life experience. And, and why would you ever say no to a unique experience that can change your outlook on something unless you're really, really scared of changing your outlook on something? Uh, but yeah, I guess if, if, you, if somebody was saying, like, I want to teach, I would probably say, you know, Consider, do you want to teach adults or children? Because they can be very different. Uh, do you want, what, what's your focus? Do you want to, do you want to work because you want to have a job and you want to make money and you want to, you know, function that way? Or is your primary concern that you want to travel like a lot of people who come to taiwan like i said i came i'm thinking this is my job this is what i'm going to do yeah you I'm worked make some through money. the summer other people didn't you took all right. the classes you could take to pay and avoided the you could do this for free like i'm not doing any, i'm not taking chinese for free i'm going to be teaching english for money yeah exactly so i i went that route other people were like i'm here to learn the language some people come here and they're like okay taiwan's a great uh base to travel around asia where they're like i just want to kind of make money for traveling uh, you know, so I, I don't want to work too much because I want to leave some time. You know, I would say what is what is your not your reason for doing coming or doing it, but what is your kind of goal or what what do you want to get out of it and have that kind of guide, you know, where you're going to be working, because if you, if you want to make money, you might want to focus on maybe more of like a private school or, or more like an elementary school or something like that, where you're, you're getting, you know, quite a few hours and working quite a bit. Uh, if you want to focus on uh, learning a, if you want to focus on learning the language, you might want to work at one of the cram schools that work in the afternoon, uh, you know, cause kids will go there after school and that'll leave your mornings free. So you can go take a, a like a, 
university course. A lot of universities here offer Chinese courses for foreign students. So you can take, you know, Chinese classes in the morning and then work in the evening. Uh, if you want to travel around, you know, you might want to, you know, that'll depend on what kind of school you want to go to or, you know, how often you want to work. Do you want to work on weekends or, or that sort of thing? So I say, yeah, look at, look at what you want to get out of it and then have that kind of guide where you would be looking for a job or for work or that sort of thing. Who are the people in the 16 years you've been teaching? And have you moved a lot of companies slash schools or have you been at the same school the whole 16 years? I've been at the same school the whole time. Wow. Okay. So, but you have to, so being there is with what sounds like it could be a very transitory position, people trying this out for a period of time for their own reasons, their own goals, and then bailing. This is not a long time career for them working at this cram school or working at this particular school. What are the kinds of people who not just get what they want and leave quickly? So are transitory. What kinds of people show up and they get hired and they're qualified but they do not work out for the position. So if somebody asks, you know, you say, hey, do it, but then are there any things you tell them, you want to make sure you're these three things, or you want to make sure you're not this, or your expectation should be this? Uh, Yeah, no, I would definitely say make sure that you are a people person. That's definitely a huge one. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people kind of come over, and I think they have it in their minds, especially here in Taiwan, they have it in their minds that, you know, this is, I'm going to be a teacher and they they kind of see it as a, more of a college professor than you would like an elementary school teacher in a way, you know, I'm going to be doing a lot of lecturing. I'm going to be doing a lot of explaining that sort of thing. But with cram schools, these kids, they've been at school all day long and now they want to have some fun. So it's kind of a mix of, school but at the same time there there are a lot of almost like daycare or kind of uh fun elements that you want to you know play games with and things like that so you definitely want to be the kind of person who is going to be socializing and getting engaged with your students because yeah they they, they're not there for a lecture they've already been doing that all day (laughs) you know they want they want to have some fun now so that definitely uh you want to be able to to do that you want to be the kind of person who is not going to be easily frustrated if if you can if you kind of get frustrated easily or uh you you know if things don't if you're very particular about things you might not want to do it or you might want to be a lot more careful about what you're doing uh you definitely have to be the kind of person who wants to just kind of go with the flow and be kind of like oh okay you know I'm going to adapt to this but you don't want to be too much obviously either cuz you do have a job to do I am curious um, about this this cram school thing at the end of the day reminds me of like <clears throat> the Sunday school thing where the kids are by and large they're being forced by their parents to go to this extra stuff do you feel like with the kids who show up across the age range are most of them self-motivated about coming and doing this that or is it really you're you saying they have to have fun because they show up with like they don't really want to be doing this. They'd rather be home doing something else. It's a weird bag. Uh, it's one of those things where they would definitely rather be at home, especially now, um, because, you know, you can play your switch or your video games right. on your phone or whatever. Right. Um but it's kind of a weird bag because, for example, my wife had a friend and he had a daughter. And this guy, you know, he had growing up, he had like learning disabilities. He has Tourette's. So he always kind of struggled with that sort of thing. Um, 
And so he was like, I absolutely do not want to send my daughter to cram school. This is just something I do not want to do. I had a horrible time with it. I absolutely do not want to do that. But the problem was, is that after school, you know, he, he brings his daughter home, but there's no other real kids for her to socialize with because all the other kids are in cram school. Oh. So it's not just an educational thing in a way. It's also kind of a social aspect. And this is where, you know, if, if all your friends are going to cram school, some of the kids are like, I want to be there because that's where my friends are. Yeah. But I don't want it to be like school. I want to have fun. Yeah. Um, so, so in a way... It's yeah, so it's kind of weird because they're like, I don't really want to be here doing this, but at the same time, I don't want to go home. No, I'd rather perfect. be at this location. I, I, so I don't think that's that. I mean, my daughter with regular school right now, again, if you asked her, does she want to go to school? No, but then I asked her, what happened if it switched to remote? You could just be at home, and she's like, I would cry because her favorite thing about school right now is her friends, it's not the school, so it's that same thing. So the kids don't want to go to cram school, but that's where all their friends are, so that's where they want to be. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's it's got that whole dynamic. What do you do? Could you give an example? I am curious about that. So I know there are so many ways to teach language and it, <clears throat> it's rough because I, I mostly just teach like the Hebrew Aleph bet and don't get too sophisticated into language use, modern Hebrew. So I'm just really teaching something very rote. Learning the letters can be very rote as opposed to like a lot of chatty conversational stuff. You could play all kinds of games and and learn, he, and learn um, English grammar and English words that way. Could you give an example of something you use that like where you absolutely have clear learning goals and clear teaching goals, but it just feels like a game to the kids? Depending on the ages, that's going to be very different. When they're really small, it doesn't matter whether it's a game or not. If you tell them it's a game and you act excited when they get the right answer, <laughs> they think it's a game. Okay. So sometimes the really small ones are just super easy to teach. Like you can say, you know, you can just write the letters of the alphabet on the whiteboard and just say apple and they just like you know run up and, and tag the letter a and you're like wow that was so great and they get super excited so i mean for little kids it's actually really easy okay you, fine you just, then when you do when you when you no longer can trick them then okay yeah now. when they get older <laughs> um yeah when they get older so for example uh one thing i might do is you can't so teaching them the correct grammar is one thing, but actually one of the best ways to, to teach them is basically having them uh, look at, you know, because usually we ask them a question, they give us an answer, right? Okay. So a lot of times if you can take a different approach, like for instance, you give them the answer, they have to give you a question. Oh. That's, uh, you know, it just, it just kind of flips. It, it just causes your brain to think of it from a different angle. Or you give them incorrect sentences and they have to correct the sentence. So for example, what I'll do is especially with like, say verb tenses if uh or you know prepositions and, and once they've gotten to more advanced things i'll write a sentence up on the whiteboard and i'll circle each word in the sentence and then i'll get two kids to stand behind a desk in the middle of the room because the way the we teach the the desks make kind of a horseshoe shape okay so there's a big empty space in the middle of the room where they can play i'll put a, a desk or something in the middle of the room and i'll give them two kind of nerf guns with this, uh, with the suction cups on the tins, and they have to shoot the word that's wrong. Okay. And then they have to correct the sentence and, and give me the correct sentence. So something like that, you know, because they're they're using Nerf guns in class, and you know, so something like that can make it a lot more exciting. When in reality, all it is is, you know, because on a you, you give them a test, 
circle the word, right. write the correct word. That's annoying. But I give you a Nerf gun. I say, shoot the word and, and say the right word. Suddenly it's exciting. What do behavior, so these things you're talking about, like when you have an, an attentive, fun class where people, they have a good relationship with you and you have a good relationship with the students, they have a good relationship with each other and there's a good energy there. What, do you, have you ever had classes in 16 years there was not a good energy? What does kind of a discipline problem look like or a behavior problem look like in your Taiwanese cram school versus what you imagine or maybe what you remember from behavior or discipline problems you remember from your own schooling in the States? Well, probably the biggest one is uh, using Chinese in the classroom. Oh, uh, and are they doing it? They're n and they're and is that their way? Is that like their stubborn arm crossing way of like I'm not going to do this? It's a couple different things. One of them, for some of them, it's a hundred percent that they're like you know you can't control me. You tell me not to do this thing, so I'm going to do this thing. <laughs> and what are you going to do to stop me? Right. If if I want to speak my native language, who are you to tell me that I am not allowed to speak? my native language to my buddy sitting right next to me here. Right. Um, you know, so, so for some of them, it's that for some of them, they just, for whatever reason, it, you know, you, they get too excited or, you know, they just forget where they are and they just blurt out something, you know? Uh, and then you got to calm them down because now they're all kind of chit chatting and yelling <laughs> back and forth. Uh, so you got to kind of calm them down and get them back into that English mindset. And other times it's just, something happens and a kid's upset or whatever and they just they want to tell you something and they just can't do it in english and they're just getting so upset at themselves because they're like uh, you know i just and that especially happens with the the younger ones where you know it, and the thing is is usually it's not something important but to them it's really really important so they just absolutely have to tell you you know like for instance uh they'll say because, like, you know, they still have to wear masks in school or something. And they'll be, like, trying to tell you, like, oh, this kid pulled his mask down to drink some water. And they're, like, you know, because you had just told them you can't take off your masks. And, you know, and they're, they're trying to tell you, but they don't know the word for mask. They don't know the word for pull out down. And they're getting really frustrated because this other kid broke the rules. Yeah. And that's totally wrong. But then, of course, you know, once you do figure out what's going on, you're, like, he was drinking water and he just put his mask right back on. It's not that big of a deal. You don't have to, like... <laughs> <laughs> tell me everything that happens um so yeah those those situations are, are probably the hardest in terms of discipline is just trying to get them to speak english especially because like you said you know these kids they want to be there because they want to be there with their friends but they don't really want to be in the class yeah. and so because of that they're kind of like eh, you know i don't really want and then also too you know for instance if you have a class of say 20 kids you know if you're doing something on the whiteboard or if you're walking around checking books or you, you can't interact with 20 kids at one given time you know you can interact with two or three and then the next two or three but you know during that downtime they're kind of like you know i'm not bothering anybody you know and i'm going to speak english when it's my turn who cares if i speak some chinese right now right um but our school does have a policy of uh full english immersion so do they tell, I mean, do you literally have to be like, how many times in your 16 years have you said no Chinese or remember in English, in English? Like, is that your, what's your standard go-to for when you hear somebody speaking Chinese and your first level, your very nicest possible way of reminding them they should be speaking English? I just say, I'm sorry, what'd you say? <laughs> okay, so that's the first one. <laughs> 
that's good. It's not in order. Just like, huh? And then that, rem- oh, right. I'm supposed to be doing English. I got you. Yeah. And they'll, they'll get, they'll, they'll try to get cheeky too. They'll, you know, cause they'll say something in Chinese and you're like, Hey, no, you know, no Chinese. And they're like, teacher, I was speaking Taiwanese, not Chinese. <laughs> and I'm like, fine, no Chinese, no Taiwanese. And then they're like, okay. And then the next time they come up and they're like, uh, you know, oh, konnichiwa, you know, and they're like, teacher, that's Japanese. That's not Taiwanese or Chinese, you know, and, and they'll try to whatever language that they know, you know, bonjour, you know, like yeah. they'll just throw it out there. So uh, my last question about the kids. Also, I'm curious if you ever are able to follow them where they go. Kids who are in school and they're in cram school, do they go through cram school all the way secondary school and then do most of them who are in cram school wind up going to post-secondary, so university or college? <clears throat> And then how many of them leave the country? If their vision is, I want to speak English, is it, I want to go somewhere, somewhere else, or is it staying here? Uh, I would say that cram school is so ubiquitous that you're not going to see kind of a difference between that and the general population, because that kind of is the general population. Okay. Um, I will say, though, that they do, there is a shift in what kind of cram schools they go to, because you do have, like, the younger ones will be learning a lot of English. Uh, the older ones will often focus on kind of uh, high school entrance cram schools that just like focus purely on like entrance exams and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that always really irritates me is when I have a student and, you know, the student will drop out of the class. And of course, you know, the teachers, the, the Chinese teachers will have to do follow ups and talk to the parents like, oh, I mean, are you not satisfied with the class or something like that? And the parents will say like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, in school, her English she gets great scores, but her math's bad. So I'm putting her in math cram school. And that always irritates me because I'm like, ah, you know, like I'm losing the student because I did my job. <laughs> you know, that's, that's so frustrating that I did my job. And because of it, I'm losing the student. So, But again, it feels uh, so even your failures in many cases can be easily reframed into success stories. It's a failure. The school's losing the money and the sc- student's leaving. I mean, again, I have that experience with tutoring where I tutor myself out of a job. If the tutor picks, if the 2T picks up the stuff quickly, then I'm, I'm go, go your way. And then, you know, I don't get any more money, but you're beyond. You can move on to the next step now. Yeah, yeah. On a, on a personal level, it's really nice. But uh, on a professional yeah. level, you know, like, because the higher ups are saying, like, why are our numbers down this month? Why are we losing students? You know, that sort of thing. And especially because now, like, Taiwan's birth rate is actually really, really low. I think it's actually lower than Japan's currently. And so with cram school being as popular as it is for a long time, you were just getting lots of new schools opening up. But the number of students is actually dropping. And so because of that, classes are getting smaller. It's more competitive trying to keep students in the classroom. Uh, And especially now... there's kind of a cultural shift because for instance when i first came and then even when my wife was younger parents who grew up in you know the white terror or these other this other era you know taiwan was kind of a a small country and then you know if you know back in the 80s and maybe early 90s everything said made in taiwan right yeah that's where everything was made and so taiwan just became kind of this powerhouse and started making all this money and so those People said, I want a better life for my children. I don't want my children working in a factory making cheap plastic things. I want them to be successful. So they put all their kids in cram schools, you know, really push them for education so they could be successful. And now Taiwan is like, what, the uh, the top semiconductor capital of the world, basically, right? We have uh, TSMC, which 
produces most of the semiconductor, like 20, 20 or 30% of all semiconductors in the world are made in this tiny little island. So it worked. But on the other hand, a lot of those kids that grew up in that system, they're the parents now. And like my wife's friend, they're like, I don't want my kid to go through this. And so the shift is very different now where you have a school like, say, mine, which is very, we used to be very strict in our uh, in our criteria. Mm-hmm. So we would say like, okay, if you get lower than an 80 as your final score, you have to repeat the level. We will only allow you to move on if you're above 80. But other cram schools are like, oh no, you know, this kid's, uh, we're just gonna watch movies in English and the, sing some songs and it's gonna be fun. You know, and then the parent, but to the parents, they're thinking like, that's what I want for my kid. Low pressure. They can hang out with their friends. Um, You know, I am at work. So this is, this gives them something to do. So, you know, I'm not having to take care of them at home. So this is a great opportunity. So, you know, the, the, what the parents want has really shifted quite a bit. And so we've had to kind of shift our standards and that sort of thing to accommodate kind of this cultural shift. Has that felt bad for you as a teacher, or are you okay with that? Um, given how much emphasis we put on things, you know, I, I'll just say, I no, I think I think it's a it's been bad as a teacher. Um, I do think that you know having fun with the kids and stuff is great. You know, if you wanted me to just sit there and play kickball with them, I'd be perfectly fine with that. Right. But um, but at the same time, I do feel like it is troublesome because we will have a kid who comes here, they don't do well, they leave, they go to another school, and then they end up coming back to our school because at other school they were learning nothing. But the other problem is, is because, you know, we used to be one of, if not the largest cram school chain in Taiwan when I first came. And because we had these really strict standards, if a kid failed out of class, that wasn't really an issue because there was another class right behind it that they could join in a couple weeks. So it was never a huge problem if a kid wasn't able to pass a level now we might have uh nine months between levels and so you know if if you if you fail out of that class you'd have to wait nine months for the next one to catch up which means that we can't fail this student so the student should be failed they're not going to be so we have to do all these makeup classes for them or we have to uh, help them with their homework and that sort of thing, which puts extra pressure on the teachers. But it's also kind of like if you were, you know, if you're running behind something and you're tied to that thing, like, you know, running behind a horse and you're tied to it, as long as you're on your feet, you're fine. But when, you know, you stumble, it's really hard to get back up. And when once you completely fall down, you're still being dragged by that horse, but there's no chance of you ever getting up again. And we have lots of students that'll be in that situation where they just can't, you know, they just, they're too far behind. They're missing basics for the more complex things that we're doing now. And there's, you know, they really should, for their benefit, be placed in a lower level class because they're just not learning anything anymore. But we can't do that because we need to have, you know, we, we need people to pay. We need to pe- people to, to sign up for classes. So there's a, so that's kind of a, always a struggle. And I think in some levels too, or on some level too, that's actually been contributing to other factors. Like for instance, students who speak Chinese in class, you know, maybe they misbehave, they speak Chinese, they don't study, they don't do well, but they still pass. And there's no downside to it. There's nothing that tells them, you know, it's like, okay, 
the teacher yelled at you, you failed the test, you had to take the test three times, you got a 60 each time, right. but you still get to move on to the next level. Who cares, right? It doesn't matter. And so I, and then for kids that are having behavioral issues, when you have something like that and you can't say like, sorry, you can't move on, you know, they, there's very little incentive for them to, you know, behave themselves. 